You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcast, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. Theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Welcome back to the Great Divorce Podcast. We're in chapter two of the Great Divorce, and now we get to the meat of the conversations and the people and the engagement. And so I'm really excited about today's podcast, particularly because chapter two has some really fun digs at Napoleon and people you probably know who act like some of these people. I just first want to step in and say thank you to all the people that made it through the preface and chapter (laughs) one of this book with us. Yeah, I feel like we're we're shedding people as we go. Hopefully, we've still got about two or three left that are listening. But thank you. Well, we're going to go in. If you remember a little bit, just a brief remembrance of last episode, the preface set up that the choices we make matter and the directions that we choose matter. And we were introduced to Greytown. Today, we're going to talk about what Greytown is because chapter two is where you actually get some experience of what Greytown is, like a fuller, more comprehensive assessment. And it's all done through conversations. So at the end of chapter one, the narrator, who's not named, the narrator gets on the bus along with a handful of other people and the bus starts to leave the ground on their way to someplace better. And so the entire chapter two is about the people that the narrator meets on his journey. And I love this particular part of the book precisely because I know people like the people we're about to meet. And I think it's really funny imagining C.S. Lewis writing this and thinking, some of my friends are going to hell. They're literally living in hell, and I'm going to make fun of them in my book. That's at least how this section seems to me. I also really like how he describes all the people. You've kind of got to translate it into like 1940s Great Britain to understand what he's describing as your first sentence will will indicate. Well, the first sentence goes like this then. <laughs> I was not left very long at the mercy of the tussle-headed poet because another passenger interrupted our conversation. I wanted to leave this conversation with the tussle-headed poet to this chapter as opposed to the chapter one, because this is really a chapter about all the people that are on the bus. And the first person you get introduced to is this character who starts pulling out his own. Have you ever met someone who writes their own material and you don't really want to listen to it? And so they pull out their own material. Like Forrest, by the way, has a uh, a ready-to-go stand-up comic act. Of course. And there are Doesn't everyone? No, no, most people don't, Forrest. (laughs) Um, But like there are moments where he pulls it out and you're like, oh man, put it back. I don't need it. I'm just joking. But it's good. It is good, actually. But- so, but you know people for whom they write a book and they all they want to do is hawk their book. Like me, I just wrote Solid Souls. And when someone writes a book and they pull it out, you're like, oh man, all right, that's fine. Anyway, that's what happens here. And so the tussle-headed poet describes at the end of the first chapter that no one likes Greytown. 
which is really interesting because everyone's living in Greytown. So then in the second chapter, it says he wasn't long left to that guy because another guy interrupted. And here's his description of this unique individual. This man appeared to be a singularly ill-used man. His parents had never appreciated him and none of the five schools at which he'd been educated seemed to have made any provision for a talent and temperament such as his. To make matters worse, he has been exactly the sort of boy in whose case the examination system works out with the maximum unfairness and absurdity. It then goes to say that capitalism didn't work. There was no recognition. And then it wasn't communism that worked. The description of this guy is the guy for whom the world has always been unfair. And it never works out. And no one recognizes his brilliance. And no one likes him. It's like, you know, the joke about if Joe has a problem with Bob and Sue has a problem with Bob and Bill has a problem with Bob, maybe the problem's with Bob. That's what this story is like, is this guy has never been used properly. And really the difficulty of that is he just needed to get out of his own way. When I was growing up, my dad and I used to act like this because everyone acts like this at some point, right? Where you get in your own head and your own stuff. My dad would mock me when I was little by singing, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'll just go eat worms. And I feel like that's what this guy did his entire life. And what you end up discovering is he chose worms. He chose kind of his own pettiness over anything else. It even actually, by the way, describes that he'd been badly treated by a girl, too. Like, nothing goes well. And he was very frustrated because she had jealousy, possessiveness, and wanted to be monogamous. And he didn't. And that was just insulting. Like, it's just really funny to think about this guy for whom nothing has been right, but now he's on this bus to heaven. And what is he going to choose? I think we all know this person. Like you were saying at the beginning, this is so funny, this chapter, because it's it's all these people we know. and. Just going through all the things that he goes, you know, he went full bore into each one of these things. And then eventually it <clears throat> it failed him, you know, disappointed him. Then he went on to the next thing. And Well, and, and what's funny is he gets into the gray town and he goes, well, I wasn't meant to be here. Even the powers that be don't recognize that I'm here. Not understanding that he made the choices at every single step to choose bad over good. It's like those moments where you start doing your own little pity party. You know that's not good for you, but you just can't get out of that habit. Then he gets interrupted again. Like, that's the funny thing about this part of the great divorce is you keep getting interrupted by people that have another set of issues because there are all different ways to choose hell. Then there was a little, like, fight that happens on the bus, and he ends up next to someone else who starts to explain what Greytown is. Did you just skip over and call that a little fight? Yeah. Where guns and knives were drawn and... Well, but okay, so it's a, it's a unique bit. <laughs> yes, I did just skip over. I was, when I was reading it, I was like, wait, like guns, knives come out and this is... So here's what it says. One of the quarrels, which were perpetually simmering in the bus, had boiled over and for a moment there was a stampede. Knives were drawn, pistols were fired, but it all seemed strangely innocuous. And when it was all over, I found myself unharmed, though in a different seat and with a new companion. Yeah, I mean... It's funny, like, the way he's describing this town, fights like that happen all the time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just funny, because when I was reading it, I was like, wait, gun? Like, it stood out to me as, as a pretty big deal. Because if you were on a bus where guns were drawn, you would no longer be on that bus? Yeah, and then to, you know, it just it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Like, that wouldn't have been my answer. That would have been the story I told for the rest of the week. But when you're in hell or when you're surrounding yourself in bad circumstances, that kind of stuff apparently is simmering all the time, according to Lewis. 
anyway, so the next conversation is describing Greytown, where you start to understand. And the narrator starts the conversation trying to figure out what it is. He By the says, way, this, this part is, you know, after reading this twice, and this being my third time to go through it, this part of description of Greytown is what stood out to me the most. Like when I think back about the Great Divorce, this is, the description of this is just really interesting. Here's the description. He starts out by volunteering this to kind of figure out what's going on. He says, it seems the deuce of a town, which I think is British town for, it seems a town that confuses me. And that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. I had a different guess at what deuce meant. Well, okay. Thank you, Forrest. (laughs) He's here for the puns, ladies and gentlemen. Was there once a much larger population? And the neighbors said, not at all. The trouble is they're so quarrelsome. So you come from this fight where guns and knives are easily drawn. And then you end up having the description that that's just the way of the town. Everyone is so quarrelsome. And so before anyone's been there 24 hours, he fights with the person next to him and so moves to the next street. Very likely, the next street is empty because people there are quarreled with their neighbors. Like, it's this cascading level of hell where no one can stand anybody. And so they keep spreading out in distance. So apparently what you discover here is that it's easy there to keep moving because all it takes to build a house is to think about the house. So imagine a world in which you don't like your neighbors and all you have to do is imagine a mansion next door and you get to move into the mansion next door and you no longer have the crappy neighbors you've been with. That's Greytown. This is really funny to think about here. When we're recording this, there's a huge housing shortage. And I was just like reading this thinking about the current housing market and how you know, there's a lot of people that might be listening that are building houses right now that they wish they could just imagine a house. Except that there's a whole setup here that if you, if it's free and easy, in fact, that's one yeah. of the people we're about to meet. If it's free and easy and doesn't take work, you don't have to be with around other people. Would you? Like in hell, what they choose or in Greytown, what they choose is to keep moving. Uh, Because the house, as you find out, isn't actually real. And the bus is like a bus station at the middle of a place where people keep going out in long distance from one to another to another in like this massive distance here. It says people have been moving on and on, getting further apart. They're so far off by now, they could never think of coming to the bus stop at all. You can actually get a telescope, he says, and see people in the far distance who have built a house that is so far away that you can't even fathom going there and back. Anyway, I think it's really interesting to think about what would you choose if all you had to do was to build a house just to escape your neighborhood or the people you're around? If at the first like moment you could, you would reject them and find something else. I think I would live in Dubuque, Iowa right now. If <laughs> Why Dubuque, Iowa? Well, if I started here, here, like moving out, like oh. I'd, by about now I'd be there. Fair enough. So what's really funny is then they go, well, how cool would it be if you meet any of those old guys? Like any of those famous people from back in the day, like Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar or Henry V. Like, it's kind of funny to think about Lewis writing this and going, what famous ancient people do I think are in hell right now? Like, I just think that's a really fun way to imagine this storyline. Of course, the one he decides to mock is Napoleon, which is a very British thing to do, by the way, because he's very sure Napoleon's in hell. Uh, And it says the nearest one of those old ones is Napoleon. We know that because two chaps made the journey to see him. They started long before I came, of course, but it was there when they came back. About 15,000 of our years it took them. 
and they got there, they see this massive house in empire style, rows and rows of windows flaming with light. And all Napoleon is doing is walking up and down, trying to figure out whose fault it was he failed. And he starts blaming all the different people in his life, in his world. And that's all he's doing in hell. He has chosen where the first guy you meet here has chosen his own self-importance of I've never been recognized. Napoleon, all he's doing is choosing whose fault it is. Whenever he starts talking about this, it gets at something that I think is interesting. This is when he starts getting at the scale and the scale of what it is, but also the sense of time. And this is one thing I personally had a hard time comprehending about eternity, right? Like, what is time? Like, what is it? And it's just interesting how they're talking about it here because they're talking about the 15,000 of our years. Yep. Took yeah. 15,000 years for the guys to go for, there. For and them back. there and back. But it's all just kind of the same thing. Like, there's no. There's no sense of like time marching on like it's forward or backwards. It's more just kind of it just happens. So this is what I like in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lewis writes like there are all these connection points because Lewis writes about time in other books. And one of the things that Jesus says or Aslan, who's Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia, says all times are soon. And so you'll actually hear that later when you get to heaven about the choices you make and what time it is. When you get into the question of eternity, time is always a funky concept. No question. (laughs) All right. So I also think we also know this person. Like, this is what I love about the Greytown conversation is I think everyone here, we have the potential of being either the person who thinks we've never been understood or the person who thinks it's someone else's fault. And Lewis is saying, if you hear that bit and you think, oh man, I have that tendency, he's trying to get you to say, don't do that. Turn around. So if you go back to the preface, when he's saying you can go a different direction, you can't keep going on. Like Napoleon can't keep going on and blaming others in order to find his way to heaven. He's got to actually repent. He's got to turn around. He's got to say, I want to find the bus. Like that's where Lewis is very precise in this. And he wants you and me to make different choices right now. What What's crazy, we didn't really talk about this in the preface episode, but this is kind of where you start seeing this is, it's not like every decision is a radius of a circle, a radii of a circle. Like it's, it's not all going, working towards the middle. He sees it more like a tree. I picture like a two-dimensional tree that is, you know, a picture of one or like a, you know, an ant farm or something where there's all these different paths, right? And it's going out and every decision that Napoleon is making is either, you know, taking up, up and higher towards the high places or it's taking them further and further out on the edge of Greytown. And Like, this is where the visual of that really comes into play for me. What's really interesting also is here you then start to have a discussion about what the houses are made of. Because in the conversation we just had, it was like, how cool would it be in this housing shortage if all you have to do is think about a new house? Except that in Greytown, the house is actually just a figment of your imagination. It's not solid. It's like you imagine yourself in something that provides no shelter, no comfort, no heat, like all the things that shelter does, the house doesn't do it. So the guy he's talking to is describing Greytown and saying the reason why Greytown exists is because there are no commodities. You need something real in order to actually create a market and competition and capitalism, whatever else you're talking about. I find that to be a really interesting discussion because 
It's like we think that all we need is just some more real thing to for us to decide we've got to live with one another, right? That we have all this brokenness in our world. And I think there's all this attempt to say, well, if we can only get our political structures right, or we can only get this other one thing right, we can only get our economies correct, well, then the world is going to be fixed. And you realize that humans make these decisions regardless of economies, right? There's heaven and hell in every economy that's existed, in every country that's existed, in every place that's existed. And the real question is, are we as humans going to choose heaven or hell? Not just what structure are we technically in? Because if you can imagine Greytown as a place where you think, well, all I need is to fix the economics of it. You've missed the soul of the people. And the real question driving heaven and hell is the soul of the people. I just think that's a really powerful element because then they describe, so what are they afraid of? Like, why are they building the house? And if the house doesn't provide any structure, what are they trying to do? And they say, well, they're trying to protect themselves from dark, from night. So if you remember the first line of the first chapter, evening was coming, right? The first line of chapter one is, I seem to be standing in a queue by the side of a long, mean street. Evening was just closing in and it was raining. Then you discover that evening has been closing in for all 15,000 years. They went to find Napoleon and back. Evening is closing in. That's a reality of this gray town, not just a time of day, because evening has been closing in for 15,000 years. And they're building these fake houses, thinking that somehow that's going to protect them. When really the only thing that would actually protect them is getting on the bus and choosing something different. This is where I think from a practical level, from a pastoral, personal level, how many people have chosen anger or frustration or pride or greed or lust or whatever it is, thinking that's going to make them happy. This is going to be the thing that's going to do it. And it never does. One of the things that I started getting a sense of in this time is a lot of this was based on fear. Like this is where it kind of gets introduced that they're protecting themselves from something. Because at first it was the greed of moving away from your neighbors. It's all these weird things that drive what they're doing. And like we're moving into the kind of fear aspect of it. And not understanding the world in which they lived in. So the last guy you meet here is a fat, clean-shaven man. You like the fat, clean-shaven yeah, man? I like him. The fat, clean-shaven man who sat on the seat in front of me and leaned back and addressed me in a cultured voice. And he says, excuse me, but I couldn't help overhearing. I can't do a British accent, so apologies if I slip into a fake one on occasion. But I couldn't help overhearing parts of your conversation. It is astonishing how these primitive superstitions linger on. There is not a shred of evidence that this twilight is ever going to turn into a night. There's been a revolution of opinion on that in educated circles. I'm surprised you haven't heard of it. All our nightmare fantasies of our ancestors are being swept away. What we now see in this subdued and delicate half-life is the promise of dawn. That was the end of the quote. I think it's unbelievable because there are so many times that people think that heaven or hell or the realities of our present, the consequences of our choices, how it's all a myth. Really, it's this guy. I think it's this clean-shaven fat man that is the guy that Lewis wrote the entire book for is people think that they can intellectualize the reality of our souls away, intellectualize the reality of the world in which we live in, who think, well, it doesn't matter what you choose. It doesn't matter what you want. That the superstition of Jesus offering us heaven is all fake. 
And then you get to, and this is where chapter two ends, where the bus comes up and out of wherever they are. We'll discuss that later. And the grayness outside of the windows turned from mud color to the mother of pearl, then to the faintest blue, then to a bright blueness that stung the eyes. So this is the second place that I really connected with him because I've been on an airplane where you're coming in and you raise your window because you want to see the, you know, coming in the land and everybody around you just groans because it goes from pitch black and there where they were sleeping to your window's the one that shines a light on them. Because the narrator goes, yeah. well, this is cool. This is different. I'm out of Greytown. And they open up the window like on an airplane and it's too bright and everyone's groaning. Uh, and someone actually says, hit him. Um, <laughs> which is always funny. And the light continued to grow. And so here you've been described Greytown where everyone hates each other. There's quarrelsome fights with knives and guns. And Lewis ends with chapter two saying, but there's a different possibility. There's a different reality and you don't yet know what it is. So that's what we're going to end chapter two with. Come back next episode and we're going to talk about what that new world is. But everything is in contrast to the gray town that you've just heard. Now you might understand why when people have picked up the book without any narrator or any guide, they get to this place and they go, I have no idea where I've been or where I'm going or what this book is about. I hope you've got a better clue. And next week you're going to have even more. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go eat worms. Great big juicy ones. Eeny weeny squeeny ones. See how they wiggle and squirm. Got no place but I know just why I'm here. Live me out of the Steady in the face of fear I wanna swim in the deepest ocean I wanna feel heaven come alive I wanna find all that I've been missing Tear down the wall, make it to the other side